Welcome to the Digital Leaders Podcast. Today's guest is Linda O'Halloran. Linda is currently head of the Local Digital Collaboration Unit at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, and she's in the early stages of establishing this new unit that aims to disrupt the local government IT market and stimulate the move towards interoperability standards for local services. In her recent past, Linda has also been at the Government Digital Service, is a member of the London Smart Board, and founded NGO Thinking Development, which we'll hear a little bit more about shortly. Hello, Linda. Great to have you on the Digital Leaders Podcast. Great to be here. So before we find out a bit more about what you're doing now, can you tell me a bit about your journey? So your earlier influences and what led you to your current role? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty random um, path. I definitely never thought I would work in tech. I did an undergraduate degree in music and philosophy and then moved to London to, to pursue philosophy because I was really I was really interested in um, uh, especially kind of the social side of philosophy. And yeah, studied kind of Marxism and political philosophy. And then in my second year uh, at UCL, there was this big earthquake in Haiti. And I happened to have connections in, um, in Haiti. The people who educated me in Ireland are the biggest educator of women in Haiti. And um, I just, I think uh, maybe I was getting less interested in academia at that point and wanted to get my hands a bit dirty. And it's very idealistic and um, ended up trying to help them with uh, a school re- you know, development planning project in Port-au-Prince. It was very difficult to get permanent development planning help from others working in the international community. So um, I ended up, sending up setting up an NGO. And weirdly, that kind of brought me, well, on, t- on two fronts. It, one, it brought me into contact with a lot of development planners. And I think there's actually a lot of overlap in planning how you're going to uh, change your place with how you plan digital projects. Um, you know, it's all about inclusive participatory planning. And I learned a lot about workshop facilitation and, it, and the values as well of kind of being led by people and not trying to make yourself the master architect um, was something that I got from that. Um, and also I was just totally broke and I was working in a bar. <laughs> so once I finished my, my master's, the Haiti, chat, the Haiti thing set up in my second year of an MPhil. When that finished, I was quite naive and I thought it would take, you know, another year because this is definitely a project that had to happen Towards the end of that year, my money was running really, really dry. And somebody told me about this government digital service job that was that was uh, looking for people who were good with with text analysis because gov.uk was just coming into being and they needed people to analyze like hundreds of probably thousands of web pages for the user needs that those web pages were meeting so that they could capture all of the needs and then re-architect them around uh, how a user would go looking for them. Because I was just really broke and um, philosophy kind of qualifies you for lots of lots of mulling over things and text analysis, I ended up getting a job at GDS as a content specialist, really, and working on a, on a short project there. And that was kind of my backdoor into um, part-time work that helped facilitate my continuing on this Haiti project. And it kind of led me into government. And then maybe the approach of having to set up everything from scratch for this Haiti project kind of had me in a doer's lateral thinking mindset. And I, I took a lot of opportunities from there on and now I'm where I am, I suppose. So that, I mean, first of all, that's a really um, interesting route into the role you're now in. So, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about diversity, but just I'm interested in that job 
application process, it sounds like someone on the inside thought you could do the job really well and then persuaded you to, I imagine, apply for a job that when you read the job spec and the bullet point list of things they were looking for, probably bore no resemblance to or no previous experience that you'd had before. So was that kind of one of those serendipitous moments where your eye would have passed over that job post without ever thinking you had the skill set for it? Or, you know, was it something that you could clearly do? And when you had a look at it, you thought, yeah, I can do 80% of this, let's apply. To be honest, it was definitely a very serendipitous occurrence in that somebody, uh, it was a short contract. So it was actually an eight-week contracting contract um, with, with GDS. They, they needed people quickly to do a lot of text analysis. And somebody who had just been given the job was on the team and was, you know, I met her out at a party and she said, oh, we're looking for people. You sound like you might be, you might be able to do this job. And I, like reading and identifying needs sounded pretty straightforward to me at the time. And, and from there, it like series of really lucky events. Uh, and it turned out MHCLG, then DCLG was looking for someone who could write well to do web content and then some web analytics. So I found my way into that team and then quite quickly just my boss at the time once said where there's a a void it will be filled and uh, I think I just had the tendency to fill voids (laughs) so I ended up being um I think first a web editor and then community manager for this for the program that was uh to become the local digital program at at then DCLG uh after that delivery manager on a campaign after that uh, head of project product for that campaign, which really only got going for kind of two years and then 2015 saw, saw it end. But in that short period, I, I experienced maybe four job roles with less than a year between each one, um, just because I was in the right place at the right time and I had the right attitude and probably a little bit of naive confidence that how hard can it be? And uh, it was quicker to step into the role than to try and hire anyone else. So um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of luck and people around me that, that I suppose believed that I wasn't completely incapable. So that's, I mean, that's sort of the kind of startup, I guess, GDS under at, at the start and in the early years kind of had that sort of startup feel where things moved really fast. And I guess they didn't behave like perhaps mainstream central government does now. But ultimately that you're trying to capture that serendipity into a kind of mainstream recruitment process. So I just wonder whether as you know, you're, you've lived through that period now into we'll come on to the collaboration unit shortly, but you're now kind of in that space looking to recruit people. And I guess you have to kind of work out what the formula is of behavior, confidence, you know, and not rely on serendipity to find a lot more people to do the job as well as you do. You've got thoughts on that? Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that, actually, because we have grown as a team very quickly in the last year. Um, The team I'm currently on, uh, it was only established in May with two of us, May 2018. And uh, civil service salaries aren't necessarily the most competitive when compared with especially some tech jobs in the in the big internet companies. And so often what we're doing is trying to find people that are maybe early, earlier along in their career journey or in their, in their change of career path journey. So they're uh, not in the market for such high salaries, but they really, they're very mission driven. And um, so we found there's a, a real importance in, in communicating the mission and getting people excited about that. But also once they get inside, helping them to understand that it's all about, in, uh, probably in any job, but especially in these roles that are trying to solve massively complex problems, it's all about trying to do a good job, trying to listen and trying to uh, trust that you have the intelligence to work 
together with people to, to work out how to do things. And I think people who are coming in early in their career path, early in their journey can have a lot of imposter syndrome. And that's, that's been a real lesson for me in this particular journey that imposter syndrome is a crippling ailment that holds us back. It's great that, that people are aware of, you know, all I know is that I don't know anything at all. That's a really humble way to approach your work. And it's what makes you able to be open to new ways of working and new ways of collaborating. But it, it is a, it's a challenge for, for young teams that can't bring in people who've already had the realization that nobody really knows what they're doing. They're just kind of doing their best to work things out and, and uh, learn from what they've experienced in the, in the previous roles that they've had. Yeah, I guess with the tech sector in particular, it's also new that you just, there are, there are no gray hairs or maybe we just celebrated 30 years of the internet, didn't we? So there are still no gray hairs really uh, who can say, well, you know, back in my day or, you know, this is how we fix the problem you're dealing with now 20 years ago or 10 years ago. It's all, you're doing it first time. Um, so that's, that's going to be quite interesting to see how when we get to that first cycle where we're kind of reinventing the wheel from 10 years ago or 15 years ago for the first time in the tech sector, kind of, you know, how that plays out in terms of uh, how people think about it. And, and to, you know, when we actually have a generation of people who are late in their career who can actually help the young generation tackle some of the sort of technology challenges and team challenges that you guys face. So let's find out about what you're doing. So you're now heading up the local digital collaboration unit. So tell us what that is and what it's about and what it's doing. It's a pretty new outfit, as I mentioned. I've been working on in in kind of unusual central government roles that are trying to identify where local authorities have common problems and some support, some central convening power might help them solve those in a more consistent and better value for money way. There's a lot of uh, lip service to it, I suppose, um, but it's a really hard one to get behind because it's very hard to get big, well-established organizations and services working together. Um, and there's probably a history of people who've tried um, and for very sensible reasons failed. And there's perhaps a, a bit of disbelief that it's it's worth trying to collaborate at this massive scale. But in 2017, the, the wind started to change and there was an openness on the part of MHCLG and, and uh, the Government Digital Service to see if once again we could get local authorities collaborating um, and in a way kind of have that Martha Lane Fox moment for local uh, that GDS experienced in 2008, was it? When it was, sorry, 2010, when it properly got a wave of, of mission behind it and um, Gov.uk came into being and central government has realised huge benefits, savings and the citizen, I think, has really benefited from a much better digital offering from the government, but local authorities have not managed to, to achieve such, you know, gains as quickly because it, there's an overhead to collaboration. So uh, the program is basically trying to re-energize the local digital movement to, to, to help local authorities solve common problems once, get everyone behind a common narrative, and ultimately help to help to shake up the way that public services are designed and bought at a local level, so that um, in the future. We have a lot more flexibility about what we can buy, when we can change, um, and hopefully, you know, offer better, better value for money for the taxpayer and better services for local people. Have you found what you thought you were going to find when you went out and talked to local government in terms of the level of innovation that's there? Because certainly my experience of it um, at the anecdotal level running our salons around the country is that, you know, nobody has had to be more creative and innovative than local government given the scale of the cuts 
they've faced. And that innovation has often happened with or without the IT team within local government sort of participating in it because people have just had to find solutions. So you've been set a mission when you've gone out to talk to local government. What are you finding? Are they are they kind of, you know, ready to ready to play along or is there a lot of, you know, sort of diamonds and rough rough uh, genius out there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of everything, to be honest. It's such a, a humongous group, uh, you know, hundreds of organizations employing hundreds of people. So that's tens of thousands of people. There is no generalization that you could give that applies to every local authority. Um, there's a few kind of things, reflections I have on what you put to me in that sometimes I think in the past, the language of diamonds in the rough and local authorities are also different. They could never possibly collaborate. It's true to a degree, you know, people like um, being able to just get on with what they're doing and not have to uh, worry about how others did it or fit in with the status quo. But um, my experience is that there's huge appetite to not reinvent the wheel. And um, I suppose that's been really accelerated by the fact that their budgets are so tight. It's no longer a matter of should we change? It's like, when can we change? Um, there's no way to deliver the services local authorities want to deliver unless they, they innovate massively. So I think there's huge appetite. And I think we're coming at a good time. There's a lot of fa- groundwork that's been laid by other organizations, by past incarnations of, of, of our program, um, and really innovative cohorts of local authorities that are designing new ways of doing things in a, in a common way. So the timing is right. And also, I think sometimes there's a perception that, you know, there's some kind of leading lights and they're the ones that are going to be the most innovative. And often they're the ones that have made a lot of progress on some big, gnarly problems. But in my experience, often the ones that are the best able to collaborate are the ones who are who've perhaps uh, smaller budgets, um, less capable digital teams, and they're just super, super keen. It's all about the individual's that um that are in a local authority. So the ones that we found most open to collaboration at times aren't necessarily the leading lights. Um, it's a team in a local authority that really, really wants to do things differently and um they'll they'll bend all the rules and bureaucracy hack to the max to make sure that they can participate. And often I think the most value for the sector comes back from projects like that because they're able to keep to time and yeah, more open to working together. And and what have you got in your toolbox? I mean there's presumably a sort of a Fabulous combination of carrot and stick. Is a carrot is money and expertise, and and how much stick do you have, if any, to kind of compel people to participate, or is it all, is it love and money that you're kind of bringing to to the party that to sort of oil that process? Uh, definitely no sticks. Sticks are 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 not the approach that we have in our gift, nor really think wise at this point in time, given that we're a pretty new outfit and um, we've got a lot of learning to do before it would be wise to to break out any sticks and demand that all local authorities kind of do things the same way. Perhaps we want to make sure that the demands are reasonable and um, not going to burden, place undue burdens on local authorities to adopt standards or the patterns that we end up producing. Um, Carrot wise, we have, I think we've got like um, two things. There's this local digital declaration is our, our guide text, our common narrative. Its story has been really important to all of this that in the past, I think um, initiatives that I've been involved in have failed because people sound like they're singing from different hymn sheets. So uh, we wrote a common aspiration for the future of local public services called the local digital declaration. Had it commented on by the world and his mother, hundreds of comments, which were fun to reconcile. That's kind of the basis for, for collaboration and it explains why it's important. So we've told the story about why it's important and what you can get out of it. 
um, in that there's certain benefits that we can only realize if we if we bandy together. And secondly, we, we're lucky that we have a little bit of team resource and we also have some money that we can invest. So uh, our carrot is, if you sign the declaration, you're eligible to apply for money. And if you, uh, if you can, can bandy together with a few people with similar problems and come up with a, uh, you know, a, a small project proposal, we'll give you some money. So that's how, we, how we've been starting to um, get people behind a common narrative and uh, get people working on some common problems that we can learn about um, where the value is so we can get them to identify where you know, needs are that could be met collectively and realize a bigger return on investment. Um, and we can also learn about how you work together to build a reusable thing for local public services. And I guess one of the challenges as well of this process is that tech never stands still. Um, I, I always remember someone saying to me, if we knew we could just implement 2013 really well, <laughs> that would kind of, that would work. That would be a project with the start to finish. So are, are things like AI, data analytics, emerging technologies, do they muddy the water because people wonder kind of, you know, whether what's around the corner that's going to change or, you know, you've talked about the people thing. It, it strikes me that this project and your experience of this sector is very, very people driven. Definitely. I, um, I, one thing that we on the AI and new tech front try to be aware of is that it can be a massive distraction from what needs to happen, which is uh, a lot of capacity building, helping local authorities to build capacity and user-centric service design in buying things that are maybe standards-based that have a much easier, much more um, flexible get-out clauses. The appeal of artificial intelligence and other related tech is that it, it it can solve solvable problems. The tech exists, but actually, are the ways that we're um, applying the tech and the data that we're um, feeding the tech needs a lot of work. And that's the hard stuff that we've been putting in the hard box for for too long. So we're, we're trying to, in a way, make the foundations a little bit more sexy than they've been for a while, and just distract people from the the, the shiny new things that promise to solve all problems, but um, they won't solve them really fundamentally or effectively until we fix the plumbing. That's our big mantra, hashtag fix the plumbing. Yes, that's a great, that's a great hashtag, isn't it? It really kind of helps people understand what it is that you're doing. So when I mean, you just hinted there about kind of some of the, the unintended consequences of AI and bad data and biased data and un- unconscious bias, et cetera. So you are, I mean, you've told us your background. So you're an unexpected woman in tech or didn't expect to be a woman in tech, but that is what you are and a kind of a, a leading figure within, within government. So tell me a little bit about diversity in the workplace. Are you, you know, you hiring diverse teams? You know, you're, you're now in a position where you're kind of living this experience of bringing and increasing diversity across the teams that are delivering these solutions. Um, yeah, we're definitely trying really hard to hire diverse teams. Um, makes for a happier workplace. And um, from, a, from a service design point of view, it's so important to have a diverse set of backgrounds and perspectives and skills on the team. So very passionate about that. And I mean, personally, as a woman in tech, I think I am very lucky to be around at the time I'm around. A lot of people have blazed the trail and perhaps it's, a, it's a, an especially public sector thing, but um, I work with a lot of men who are very supportive and treat me as a as an equal and um, have given me lots of opportunities. So I don't, I certainly don't feel like my gen, my gender has had any, dis, has been a disadvantage to me. And in fact, the fact that I'm in a minority still 
in a context where people are increasingly valuing diversity makes it uh, you know, a benefit to me in some ways. Yes, you're not in a minority when it comes to the UK population. That's the point, really, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> I'm in a minority when it comes to uh, being in a leadership role in tech. And um, now I think some of our listeners will be aware of this, but you're shortly going on maternity leave, which must have got you thinking about you know, even wider issues and challenges of building diverse teams. Oh, definitely. Yeah, obviously, when I realized I was going to be handing over diversity was definitely a big factor in thinking about how to restructure the team and replace me when trying to offer up my job as is wholesale I was actually made you know made aware of how difficult it would be for a parent that wants to not work after 5 or 6 p.m and you know basically who wants to work a normal full-time job how difficult that would be so I, I do do a lot of overtime I'm not proud of it but it, it, it makes me painfully aware that we need to do a lot more to make it easier for part-time working for condensed hours and for um, men, I suppose, to also be able to take some of the burden of parenthood or the, the pleasures of parenthood. I haven't really worked out good theories, but uh, we've, we've a long way to go to kind of limit our work cultures to actual proper family-friendly work hours so that we can allow people who are in my soon-to-be position um, have fulfilling jobs and uh, come back to work with the force that they'd like um, without having to feel like they're compromising the well-being of their family. And tech must sit somewhere at the answer to, to that question. I just wonder whether it is about, I, I, I wonder whether it's a kind of that industrial revolution view of the working day or the work-life balance or when you're at work and not at work. So I guess, you know, the civil service must be one of those places. Well, I don't know. You tell me, Linda. Is the civil service kind of a place where you feel they're, I mean, they always strike me as having the bandwidth, the budgets, the training, and the capacity to try out stuff that a, a small business could never experiment with. Do you think there's, uh, without um, asking you too awkward a question, do you think there are positive forces within the civil service who are up for kind of rethinking the working day? Oh, most definitely. I'm, I'm in a super lucky position um, and our team works extremely flexibly. Um, at, at a minute's notice, someone might find that they can't make it into the office. They're online all day. It's not an issue. Um, people log in at unusual hours. When talking about handing over, realize that I've, I've got it pretty good and I would be able to come back for sure. But the civil service, even still, it, it probably depends on who who's leading the team. Um, generally, I think the civil service is very good. The private sector has probably further to go, depending on where you are. It's so diverse. Some more traditional organizations that even though they have cloud technology and they have the ability to have people work remotely, don't use it, I think are, are losing an opportunity to keep some good people with them and to have happier workforces. We're, we're expected to be functional on so many platforms concurrently at the moment that I even find for myself, if I'm not working from home for a part of a day a week, um, and I can't put the wash on while I work, that uh, I'm just frazzled by, by the weekend. So um, if we're going to be as productive as the internet age allows us to be, I think we need to be a lot more flexible and use technology for its benefits and not just be dominated by its burdens. Now, the people that need to hear that message are leaders. And obviously, our network is called Digital Leaders, and you're doing this podcast because we see you as a digital leader. So you know, I think you're kind of hinting at it here. How important is it that leaders understand and embrace the opportunities of the digital age? How important is it? 
that we acknowledge that the internet exists. You know, it's an essential, essential survival skill. If you don't move with the times, the times will move on without you and um, your people will leave, I think. So we have an opportunity to, to use technology to make our lives better and we should control it and not be controlled by it. Yes, I, I think there's that element of fear, isn't there, of, of the unknown that some leaders have. I think that's such a great message for any leader listening to today's podcast is that it's that dramatic, isn't it? Your people will leave. You will not survive. And it's not a 10-year thing. It's, it's you know, those timelines are really start, starting to shorten. So you need to get on this journey as a leader and make yourself more digital. Indeed. And I think protect yourself and protect your team as a leader as well, because burnout is a massive pandemic. I've personally suffered from it. I see it happening all around me now. Um, and often it's the people that are the most conscientious, that are really smart. Uh, I almost see burnout as a bit of a, a gift if you want to reframe it. It's, it's a sign that you're really committed often, but it is a temptation of the culture that we're in. It can feel inevitable. And I think it's the leader's job to, to spot that coming, to lead by example. I've definitely not mastered that, that last bit of advice myself. But um, yeah, if we are to make the most of technology, and not be dominated by it. Um, we need to be able to disconnect from it to use it to, to be productive, use it to multitask, and then use it to not have to be working at a bazillion miles an hour, you know, all of the hours of the traditional working day and beyond. I mean, I wouldn't mind touching into that topic in a little more detail because we have, you know, mental health has come up on the podcast series this season. So it is interesting that often the most capable, successful people are the ones that seem to be suffering. I think burnout's a great way of expressing it. And it's clearly sort of, you know, hitting them hard and at, at the most unexpected moment when they probably feel that they're most successful. And then that's probably one of the challenges for people is, you know, at the moment where you're doing some of your best work and anybody looking in from the outside would think you were at your most successful. Somehow it doesn't feel like that. So do you have any, anything to share in, in that space, either from your own experience or, or working with sort of anonymous colleagues? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I think once you, a uh, very wise colleague once told me, once you get it, you always have it, which was a total, uh, it was a horrifying <laughs> bit of news. So at the time I was suffering burnout. I had, um, I'd been juggling this, this Haiti project, flying between the UK and, and Port-au-Prince and, and starting to really get somewhere in my own career in, in London. So uh, the London one was the one that paid. The Haiti one was the one that I had kind of committed to doing. And I, I, I had to finish what I said I'd start. The first sign that you're at risk is that you feel that you can't not do what you committed to doing, even though it's far too much and you just have to stop. And I, I kind of stopped for you know, a few days went back to work. And, and when you don't allow yourself to recover, in my case, I had a headache for about a year and a half. Um, that's thankfully gone now, but I, I don't think I've ever returned to the, to the same pace of, of work that I was managing back then. I think once you, once your body gets to the overload point, it tries to not let you go back there. Um, and that's okay because I don't think that I've become less successful or um, less fulfilled in my work. It's been, you kind of almost have to see the cliff edge to know to know where it is for you and you need to take a few steps back and never, never go beyond that point again and how much work you say yes to. So I was a bit greedy with work, I think, and excited by it. And I just want to say yes to everything 
to everything and I wanted to do everything. So my, my advice would be if it feels like you are exhausted and you're losing interest in things, but you have to do it, you have to stop and think again. Uh, because I think I, I really made a big mistake in going back to work, living with this headache for, you know, 18, 18 months or so, um, when I could have taken a chunk more time off. I'm sure the world wouldn't have ended. Um, the local digital movement would still be happening right about now. And um, I would have perhaps been a lot more productive in the in the year that, that I was the suffering burnout uh, at its peak. I think people get worried that if they step back too far, it'll become really difficult to get back into it. Because I think people sometimes say, oh, you know, I kind of I took a big time out. And then they come back feeling ready for it. And within about a, a week or two of starting again, they kind of feel back where they were, which is sort of yeah. overcome. So did you, I mean, uh, it's a personal question. Did you seek any help or did you rely on a great network of friends to, to talk, you, talk you through it? I sought like a doctor's note <laughs> some time off work. Um, I didn't actually seek much help beyond that. And maybe I would have benefited from it. I, I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm uh, an oversharer probably. So I had no problem in talking about what I was going through, even though it was a source of massive shame. You feel like an absolute failure for feeling exhausted at 4 PM and feeling like you need to go home. So a lot of it is in, it's kind of, it, there was a journey to overcome my own, um, pride and sense of shame that, uh, I was failing. And I was very, very lucky to have already met a lot of people who I really, really admired that had admitted to to having experienced really similar things in the past. And for me, that was the biggest, the biggest help to see light from the future and know and, and reframe my, my feeling of failure as one of achievement in some ways. It's a consequence of being ambitious and a consequence of having done something that I'm proud of in Haiti or I'm proud of in, in work uh, that I put myself in this very unhealthy position. That kind of gave me the permission, allowed me to give myself the permission to, to take the the break, the accelerator off a bit. And actually after 2015, when I finished at DCLG, then I took a couple of months off because I was really, I knew I needed to wind down, but unfortunately I, I took a while to, to make that time and justify um, stopping for a while. So talking and, and I, I really believe in oversharing the, the experience of burnout myself because um, it was because other people did that I feel like I've escaped it and I hopefully will never go back to my old ways too badly. I always have, I'll always have a tendency to push hard, but um, now I know where the, the cliff edge is, I suppose, and I'll hopefully not cross it again. And thank, I mean, and thank you enormously for sharing. You, um, I think you probably do know inside how important it is to, because you are, I'm sure everyone will tell you this, you know, you are enormously successful in what you do and to hear you share some of these experiences is just enormously empowering to people listening who are kind of somewhere on that, that curve uh, to kind of know that it's, you know, this thing exists, it's there, you know, the most successful people on the planet go through these emotions and these issues, particularly in this kind of ever-changing, uh, hard-rolling tech sector that you're a leader in is just enormously empowering. So thank you very much indeed for sharing on that. So it's time for a quick fire round on a slightly lighter a lighter note. So uh, as you know, we, have, we ask all of our podcast guests to answer three quick questions. So I will crack on. The first one is what one book would you recommend to our listeners and why? The one, it's very cliche. I think a lot of people will have already read this, but um, 
something that made a big impact on me when I read it a couple of years ago now was Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens. And uh, he's actually since written another book that I haven't read yet, but um, that gave great structure to observations I've had or um, experiences I've had whereby the importance of a, of a big story is essential in making massive social change happen. So this might sound a bit unusual, but I the, the work that I did planning schools complexes in Port-au-Prince was associated with an order of nuns who were the biggest educator of, of women in Haiti. Ireland and Haiti have this in common that in, you know, was it 1856 or so? Uh, at the time of Catholic emancipation, a bunch of missionaries came to Ireland and set up schools for, for Catholics. And the same year, a bunch of nuns sailed over to, to Haiti and set up some schools for, for girls there. And um, I'm personally going on a bit of a tangent here, but I've struggled with my faith. I'm not, I consider myself agnostic, but it really struck me after a few years that Haiti has some very serious challenges to overcome. And um, like any complex problem that requires so much collaboration and trust to solve, uh, it made me realize that the the power of religion and um, story is the only thing that that builds trust enough for people to collaborate and achieve what they need to achieve. And um, the Harari book gave that very good structure to me. And I, I think I am um, increasingly aware of the power of story. The Declaration is, is, is a testimony to that, that we need a common narrative, a common way of expressing our aspiration um, for enough people to get behind it to, you know, to make it work. Brilliant. Um, the one person I would love to have lunch with and why? Living or dead? I couldn't pick one. It was too hard. Uh, I think I would actually go personal and um, meet one of my maternal grandmother, great grandmothers. So one of one of my grandmother's mothers, both very very driven women who produced very educated women in less than ideal circumstances. And there's a strong, there's a strong uh, history of women who value education a lot and uh, have paved the way for my family to look after me pretty well. And I'm where I am now. So it's a bit, it's kind of a selfish desire to know them better and understand what they sacrificed and what they valued. No, I think that sounds like a, a, a cracking lunch. Um, and last but not least, so one thing about you that our podcast listeners would be surprised to find out. I don't own a television. I'm an avid consumer of Al Jazeera's app. I basically only listen to the news. I have Netflix and I've possibly watched it three times and I'm still paying the subscription. I think that's, uh, it's always very revealing things like that because people something, ah, okay. I want, yes, very, very, uh, very insightful. So, Linda, it's been an absolute treat. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground and you've been uh, incredibly open and sharing. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Digital Leaders podcast. It's a privilege to be on it. Thank you for the invitation. That is it for this episode of the Digital Leaders podcast. Now, of course, we would love to know your thoughts. Tag us at, at DigiLeaders and let us know. And if you want to find out more about today's guest, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash podcast, and we have all that information there. That is it for this week. I'm your host, Robin Knowles. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.